This is your host, Lindsay Rowland. Today we have part two of our Congressional Candidate Series. We are joined by Jason Church. Jason is an Army veteran and was U.S. Congressional Candidate for the 7th District of Wisconsin and ran for Republican primary in a special election about a year ago. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the show. Lindsay, thank you for having me on. Thank you for being here today. So let's get started. I would like to start talking a little bit about your military career, how you started out in the military. Yeah, well, I, like many who served in the military, I grew up in a military family. I was uh, born in Fort Knox, Kentucky, actually, uh, while my dad was on active duty at armor school at the time. Uh, when he uh, finished his uh, service obligation on active component side, he went into the reserves. So we bounced around a little bit around the country a little bit. Um, and then settled in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is where I would consider my hometown to be. It's where I spent most of grade school, um, middle school, and graduated from high school there. Um, but, you know, like uh, many military kids, you see your dad coming home in a uniform and uh, you, know, you look up to him like, you know, he is the hero that he is. And I wanted to do the same thing. So when I graduated high school, I went to the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. Uh, I, I wanted to play football, but also do ROTC. And the uh, ROTC program at Lacrosse afforded me a scholarship and the ability to not only uh, play football at a collegiate level, but also uh, begin my journey serving our country in uniform. So I went to school there, graduated in 2011, um, and then commissioned a second lieutenant. Uh, shortly thereafter, it felt like, you know, just, just like clockwork, I was moving down to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, where he began uh, infantry officer, uh, basic, uh, course at the time, or infantry, it was I bullock. So I have to get my acronyms back now is the infantry basic officer leader course. I think is what the, the, uh, uh, DOD and the army was calling it at the time. Yeah. Didn't they and, actually get rid of it though? I think like later on or something. Yeah. I, I, Lizzie, I think there's a combination now. I mean, I know that the armor school and the infantry school had, they just moved the armor school. So I was mentioning that earlier, my, my dad went to armor school at Knox, but had he been in my shoes, he would have actually gone to Benning uh, because it was the first time that they did the armor school there because they wanted to do a combined um, combat arms course down there for lieutenants. So that's where I ended up and spent a good amount of time um, there. And it was my first real exposure to people from all different walks in our country. Um, you know, from wherever, <laughs> whereas be, you know, New Yorkers, Californians, Texans, Wisconsinites. Um, and I think part of the reason what makes our military so great is the ability to have people from so many different areas of this country come together for a call to service. So that was really my first experience um, with people from vastly different parts of this country. Um, and it's something that I'm sure that, you know, you can look back on in different times in your life and those transitional moments that are typically very, very poignant in the military that you can remember. And that to me was certainly one of them. So then did you end up going to Ranger School as well? Yeah. So, yeah, when you're an infantry lieutenant, um, the, the the course is typically you go down there for, for Bullock and then afterwards you... Um, you go to ranger school and then airborne school, and then you go to your line unit. Um, so I went to ranger school. Uh, it's just a couple days after I graduated 
uh, eyeball it. So if you think about this, I, I, I had hardly any time between major milestones of my life. So whether it was like graduating college, graduating eyeball or going into ranger school and then going to ranger school was, uh, was, was an adventure. It's certainly not a, um, what I would say, a, a quote unquote gentleman's course. <laughs> it's a little bit brutal. Um, the biggest thing I thought I think it, it taught me was how far I could push myself personally. Um, and it would come into play later in a different, um, aspect of my life than I originally thought it would. Um, and it also introduced me to a lot of, uh, lifelong friends, um, people that, um, I know would have my back, uh, under the worst of circumstances. Um, I had to recycle once, uh, I think I recycled Florida. Um, I don't think, I know I recycled Florida. Sometimes that place feels like a blur to me, but, uh, uh, so I took the extended course, but I graduated in December of, uh, 2011. And, uh, needless to say, that was the best moment of the entire <laughs> Ranger school experience was graduating. Oh, wow. Um, and the thing that I really am, what I would say would help me a lot later was the dealing with adversity part and dealing with uh, stressful situations and prioritization, which is really what I think the school teaches you. Um, it helped me in combat and it also helped me after my injury. So when I graduated Ranger School, um, I went to Airborne School because I hadn't gone to it before. Every summer when cadets typically could do it while they were in undergrad, I was preparing for football. So I never had the chance to do that. So I went afterwards and then uh, took care of a couple other courses there. And then I PCS'd up to Fort Lewis or Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which was my uh, permanent duty station. Um, and the uh, situation was again, very quick. My brigade was deploying to Afghanistan. So not only was my time leaving undergrad quick or my time leaving bullet quick or ranger school quick. So also was my time going on a deployment. So I got there, I probably spent about a month, maybe tops in the joint base Lewis McCord area. I didn't, I didn't even have time to get a, a apartment. Um, I just packed my bags in a storage unit not too far off post and deployed. So <laughs> I went from graduating college to deploying to Afghanistan in under a year. Yeah, I was actually looking at your timeline and your age. So I was trying to figure out how old you are now. And I couldn't, well, first of all, you got through college kind of fast too. Uh, yeah, I went four years. Okay. Uh, uh, the yeah. standard track. I, I was fortunate that I didn't waste any credits uh, when I was an undergrad. So I, I was able to streamline it pretty quickly. Okay. So how old were you when you uh, deployed then? You would have been. So I was 23 years old. Okay. I mean, that's significant. I mean, that's pretty young in the whole scheme of things. It, it's, you know, it's a lot um, to take in. You know, I mean, obviously we have 18, 19, 20 year old enlisted soldiers that do the same thing. True. The, the, the difference here is that, you know, with the type of conflict we were fighting, you were certainly putting a lot more decision-making um, decision-making on junior leaders um, just because of the way this counterinsurgency conflict is uh, developing. You're fighting it at a squad and platoon level, which inevitably gave more authority to younger uh, 
uh, people because you had to, you had to decentralize the, the fighting apparatus. So I, so, so, so I get to Afghanistan and the climate was pretty rough. Um, the, um, the, this is just post, this is the Obama post uh, surge time Afghanistan. So you, we have about 130,000 uh, soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines over in Afghanistan at this time. And my brigade was uh, in RC South. So we were in the neck of some of the more uh, factionalist elements of uh, Afghan society at the time. You, we were just down the road from Kandahar, which is the uh, spiritual home of the Taliban. It um, had a lot of connections with local leadership, a lot of influence in areas that became very difficult for not only us, but also the Afghan government that we were trying to support to be able to influence the area. Um, lots of attacks, IEDs, um, um, pretty brutal place um, in terms of um, the amount of connect activity that was going on um, in the area. Um, my particular fob was stationed within the Horn of Panjaway. Um, so it was just across the riverbed from um, uh, Zare district and uh, about, I'd say uh, 35 kilometers southwest of Kandahar airfield. So um, it was mentioned, I think at one point, Lines at Kandahar, that one book that was written um, by the Canadian uh, armed forces that were in the area. And in fact, when we had gone into the bases of that area, a lot of the equipment and old things were actually Canadian um, military um, equipment. And we had also tried to operate with three different Afghan forces in the area, the ANA, um, the, the Civil Order Police, and just their local national police. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was untangling a web there. Yeah, I would imagine because that was still a pretty, I mean, that was still a pretty intense time there. I mean, it had gone through different periods, but it was definitely still an intense time. Yeah, and I, and I remember how real it got. It was right before I got on the plane to go over there. One of my friends from Ibolic and uh, Ranger School had just um, lost uh, his leg, pretty blown up in an in a IED blast in the area. Um, and I knew him personally. I mean, you know, so it was one of those things like the, the, the casualties and people that, um, I know it was becoming more personal to me with the individuals that were getting hurt. Um, so I knew we were going into a bad spot. So I get there, I get to Afghanistan. Um, I initially, just because I just got into the unit, they didn't know who I was. I was in the S3 shop for a little bit, but after a while they put me in a platoon. Um, so uh, my platoon, oh, it was a striker element. So we have these big vehicles, eight wheeled vehicles, typically designed for urban operations. But in this circumstance, they were being utilized in more of a rural area, um, which is where we were at. And it was a very well-seasoned platoon. Uh, been together for a while, and I was definitely the the, the new guy on the block uh, in that regard. But um, the one thing that I had always wanted to prioritize there was obviously getting our mission accomplished. But the second was the safety um, of my men. Uh, the The area was was quite dangerous, and and at different times we had been under fire. Uh, not only through IEDs, but just direct um, contact. Um, you know, various firefights and things like that. So I was always trying to maintain the safety of the element in the platoon and accomplishing your mission. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a tough hill. 
And you've got to try and accomplish the mission going out there and engaging the local population, trying to teach the Afghans how to do patrols, trying to teach them to be able to have security in their own country and to do those things you would often expose yourself. And um, that's ended up what happening to, to me um, on August 23rd of 2012. Um, we, up to the week prior to that day, we had been in a significant amount of engagements. Um, a sister platoon um, had lost um, someone, um, DMR, uh, to an IED blast. Um, we had engaged um, individuals putting bombs in the ground there um, and in doing so angered the population um, because they didn't see a difference between, you know, their son putting it in the ground, a bomb in the ground or someone else putting it in the ground. I mean, to us, it all looked the same, an enemy putting a bomb in the ground, but to the local population, they don't, they don't see that difference. So the, the, the tension began to escalate. And um, on a routine patrol just northeast of our base, we were going to set up an outpost to watch for them moving bomb-making materials in the area. And it was infilling onto the objective that uh, I had stepped on an improvised explosive device, which ignited a daisy chain and blew up all five of them at once. Um, it knocked me to the ground. Um, I remember my ears ringing quite loudly. It was just a piercing sound. And I... I looked down and I, and I realized the the legs I stood on for the first 23 years were, were no longer there. They were completely blown off. Um, it, it was a lot to take in at one moment. But my platoon, like I was, and I talked about them a ton, but the, they were such a well-oiled machine and such great men. And, was, you know, and, and they cored on the area off. Um, Pacelli, my, my medic, came up to me and put two tourniquets on me. They stopped me from bleeding to death. Um, Sergeant Roos, he took me off from that point of injury and, and, and got me um, over a bunch of rape rows because it's the only safe way to get out um, to a medevac that got me out of there. And, you know, it's amazing. I, I've had years to reflect on this now. And the advances in medical technology, understanding of what the leading cause of death is on the battlefield, and the... Um, the camaraderie and strength of that unit is what saved me. I mean, had this injury occurred in potentially in a, in a jungle in Vietnam or certainly on the battlefields of Korea or, or, you know, in the Asian Pacific area or in Europe in the world war two, I, I would have probably died. Um, and so the, the fact that I'm alive is, is, is um, humbling enough, let alone the way that my men, uh, behaved under such circumstances is something that no matter how you're feeling that there, if, if you put on a uniform and you know, those brothers and sisters that you're next to, um, there is that deep bond that can go, um, beyond what, you know, a lot of people have to experience in life and it's something that sticks with you forever and sticks with anyone who's done that. And I can certainly say that I'm a, uh, a very lucky man to have been surrounded by the, the men I was. So they got me out of there. Did you um, completely lose consciousness or were you kind of fading in and out? Do you no, 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 no. I, I was conscious most of the time. The When I hit the ground, it woke me up. So I wasn't knocked out for maybe more than a couple seconds, maybe a little bit longer. And then throughout the entire process, I was conscious. Now, I had lost a lot of blood, but at the same time, the uh, explosion cauterized um, 
parts of my legs and stopped the blood from flowing out. So that was helpful. Plus, uh, Brian putting on the, the tourniquets and stopping the blood flow, um, you know, in the area was very helpful. So I didn't lose consciousness. And the biggest thing I wanted to do was keep my men calm. Um, I didn't want them to see me panicking. I mean, obviously, I'm no longer in a position to, to, to be um, leading a platoon, but, right. but I am. Um, but I also know that my actions here affect them. So I try to maintain a, a positive demeanor the entire time. Right. And you had to keep them calm so they could get, get you out of there. Right. I mean, how, yeah. long, how long was the time between you think you got hit and when they actually like medevac you out? Was it like a really incredibly short amount of time or? It took a little bit longer, but for a reason, I mean, the, the, there's the golden hour. So if you can get someone from the time of injury onto an operating table within an hour, the likelihood of survival increases something like tenfold. I mean, it, it, it's, it's substantial. I, I'm not exactly sure the, the, the exact figure on that, but if you can do that, you're, you're really increasing the likelihood of survival. Um, they were, it's hard for me to honestly recollect how long the time was. It felt like a long time to me. Um, but I think it took them about 40 minutes, which when you think about it, we weren't in an easily a position where they could easily evacuate me. I'm sitting in the middle of a village. There's no spot that you can easily land a helicopter. They don't want to have to lift me out. So they wanted to carry me to a spot where they knew it was safe enough for a, for a helicopter to touch down and then put me on. And that took a little bit of time. Um, they also need to make sure the area was secure. I mean, the bomb had gone off. You don't want to just start treating somebody and be subject to an ambush. Um, you, you need to court on the area off and the safety of everyone else at that, at that, at that point in time was, was priority. So, um, you know, you get, you gotta, you gotta square that away. So you gotta make sure that the area is secure. Then you've got to make sure that I'm able to be transported. You gotta make sure there's a spot for the, for the, the helicopter to land and for them to be able to do that in that amount of time is, is phenomenal. Yeah, I think 40 minutes is pretty good. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't, I mean, this must have been just an incredible experience for you. I, I'm sure you never were expecting this to happen. It's not like you wake up and think this is going to happen, but you had to have had some sort of, you know, fear of it or, or knowledge that obviously that this could happen. In a weird way, you kind of almost become somewhat numb to it in the sense that we had been around enough firefights, I'd been around enough situations similar to this where um, when you see it happening to, other people, whether they're Americans or whether they're Taliban fighters, you, you see that the, uh, your, your mortality stands in your face every single day. So the fact that it hits you at one, one point doesn't, uh, it wasn't honestly all that shocking. Um, you know, you're a little bit like, Oh crap, what happened to me? But you know, it, it's not like it's unexpected. And then where did you go from there? Like eventually you would have left, you would have gone somewhere in Afghanistan, right? For the initial. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was at CAF first. So Kandahar airfield. So that was the first place I went to that was at least for stabilizing me. Um, then I was brought to Bagram and then from Bagram, I was over um, to Germany. And then from Germany, I went over to uh, Walter Reed. So it took, like four or five days to get me back stateside. Uh, the, the, the thing is they wanted to get me out of Afghanistan. So if I was stable enough for that flight, I would go. So I left Afghanistan, went to Germany. And then when they deemed me okay enough at that point for transatlantic flight, um, I was, 
um, shipped back home. And then you ended up being at Walter Reed for what, almost a year? Well, so I was inpatient for about three months. Um, it took over 20 surgeries to kind of clean up everything. Um, you know, when that bomb goes off, a lot of stuff gets shot in your legs. There's infections and stuff. And I had an interesting situation at the way the bomb goes off. I mean, this isn't, you know, surgical amputations. This is an amputation by a bomb. And so trying to reconstruct my leg was pretty complicated, certainly on the left leg. Um, the left leg took more damage than the right. Um, so in order to save my left knee, there was um, some extensive procedures that were needed, um, in particular, one that would actually add um, some flesh to it because it was a, it was pretty, pretty bad um, cut there. So took a while and then I was discharged um, from inpatient, but then I started outpatient. And uh, for those not familiar with the way Walter Reed or, so there's a bit of a controversy on the naming. There's the old Walter Reed, which is in Washington, DC, the old grounds there. And then there's Bethesda, which was the Naval Hospital. And then by the time I was there, they had combined both places. They closed the old Walter Reed down and then they renamed it the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center at Bethesda. So it's still technically a naval installation, but it takes Walter Reed's name. You know, the, the, the branches of service will have their fights over certain things. Um, so when I say Walter Reed, there might be some that are confused and thinking that I went to the one that had some of the controversies in 08 or 09. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did not go to that one. Um, that was closed. Uh, I was at Bethesda, uh, but now most people will call that Walter Reed, uh, at least in my uh, generation. But it's also known as Bethesda as well. Yeah, because you can still drive by, dri driven by the old Walter Reed now. I mean, the buildings are still there, but I think they're doing, they're they're tearing it down or they're doing construction. I don't know what they're doing, but it's not yeah. it's not a hospital anymore. Right, right, um, and and they've definitely put a good amount of money into Bethesda. Uh, they built uh, these uh, housing. We called it Building Sixty Two. It was a, a building that uh, you would go as an outpatient, so you. So for me, when I was discharged from inpatient, I lived there. It was a, it's, it's basically an apartment style living where you have your spot, there's a middle spot and there's a spot for your caregiver. So I was not married, uh, at the, you know, and so my mother was my caregiver. Uh, so she had her own room and then we had a quarters in the middle and it was all um, ADA compliant, very, very uh, much set up for someone who is in a wheelchair. Um, and, and needing more adaptive features, low carpet, easier transition points in, in restrooms, um, heights of kitchen, uh, kitchen counters and sink. So they, they'd really thought about this when they built it, that they knew that the, the wounded warriors that would go here would need more adaptive housing. And, um, it was phenomenal. I mean, the community, the sense of community there was great too. So it was an easy, you know, for me at the beginning, I was in my wheelchair more frequently. It was easier for me to go down the hill to my outpatient center or what we call the MATSI, which was a, a training center um, for amputees to learn how to walk again. Great occupational therapists, physical therapists, um, nurses, doctors who are there who taught you how to walk again. So that's what I did for about a year. I would, I would make that kind of commute down there like that um, and begin my rehabilitation. So did you, I mean, at first, did you have difficulty learning how to walk or did it, was it something that you just kept working at until you got it or how did you, how'd you feel about that? Well, it's different when you, I was fortunate to have been an athlete at one point, And I just remember 
how my body moved in certain spots. And I initially remember walking and it felt like I was on stilts. Um, you know, it was just a weird balance. And I could only go for minutes at a time. I mean, your skin is just new after having the, the surgery. So it's very sensitive to friction. So if you walk for an extended period of time, you're going to rip it up. So you can only go for short periods of duration. Um, and it can be frustrating. Sometimes it literally has two steps forward, one step back. And so, uh, it took, uh, a year. Um, and then I was able to run again. I do have running legs, skating legs, things like that. Do I use them frequently? No. Um, I, I only because the pressure puts on my knees, but for me to learn all of those things, um, I, was grateful for the professional people that had been there. I mean, I, I, my physical therapists had, you know, they, they'd done this for probably about 10 years. They were civilian physical therapists, but they just, you know, it's great when we have civilians in the, in that employ because they weren't, they're not moving, you know, they're not there, you know, they're not going to a different duty station in three years. They're not going somewhere else. So they were able to really hone in this expertise for, for me and for all those who came in and it was incredibly beneficial and the reason I'm walking today. I mean, that's really great to hear um, such good things said about Walter Reed, because like, you know, like you said, we have heard bad things in the past and those things kind of stick in your, you know, those things kind of stick around in the back of your mind, but that's great to hear that you had a great, that you had a really good experience and that you're doing well due to that today. And I would say that the reason that I was uh, the benefit, the benefactor of, of, of it is because there was strong advocacy that was going on beforehand. Um, there were people who saw some of the issues and were willing to fight um, to change some of the problems that had existed. Um, and um, I, I think that the um, there's been a lot of things that were fought for uh, by veterans in this country that I'm the, I'm the benefactor of. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, we can just look at Vietnam veterans in general and talk yeah. about what they have done to improve um, oh. our healthcare. I mean, like people complain about the VA, but I'll, I'm a big fan of the VA. They've been very good to me. I think they've, I've seen them get progressively better, like just in the last couple of years. I mean, I, you know, and I, you know, I definitely think that we owe that to the Vietnam vets who made, who, who really were screwed, but, you know, have just really taken the time to like make it better. So. Yeah, the Viet- yeah, the Vietnam vets are the ones that really, I think, opened a lot of um, eyes to some of the things that would go on. Um, and for me, obviously, this wasn't a VA situation. This was a military um, hospital, so the DOD. So I, I wasn't um, in, in this particular circumstance working with the VA. But, but um, you can tell that the attention brought to the matters by people who were firsthand affected by um, serving in combat has made such a difference. And um, I'm certainly, like I said before, a, uh, a walking example of it. That was really great to hear. Okay, so moving forward um, a little bit, I know that you, because um, I want to get into the, are uh, you running for office? Because um, that's my favorite part I want to talk about. But um, sure. so you did, you did some schooling, right? You came to Georgetown after that, right? Yeah, so I, I actually did my master's simultaneously. So I started my master's program while I was recovering. Um, and oh, at the wow. same time, okay. I, uh, I did, um, so I commute down to Georgetown from Bethesda. Um, and the university was accommodating, making sure that it was easy for me to do such things. So I mean, kudos to both uh, DOD and Georgetown University for, for the help on that. 
um, of making that more accessible and easy for me. Um, the, uh, and then I also worked as a congressional fellow for Ron Johnson, who was a senator from Wisconsin and still is uh, at the time. And uh, I met him and his chief of staff. Um, his chief of staff retired, uh, or it was, he, he left the position. He was a retired 05. Um, and after they had initially just came to meet me as a constituent, uh, I was into the service out of Wisconsin and they got notified that I was injured. So they visited. And after talking for a while about some issues in foreign policy and, and, and DOD issues, um, the Senator and I shared a lot of the same uh, viewpoints on them. And then he was like, you know, what do you, what do you do during the day? I'm like, well, I do my physical therapy in the morning and then not much after. Um, this was before I went to the university. This is before I went to my master's program. And he was um, like, well, why don't you come down and work me on the hill? So he um, and I and, and um, some others kind of started the program as a piloted program that brought wounded vets down to uh, Walter. And it didn't, it didn't matter what political party, um, you know, the, the member of Congress was or what the, the, the uh, wounded warrior was, if they wanted to work um, down the hill, they could do it. And um, it was great. It gave me a lot of experience. I did that for a year while I was at Georgetown, but uh, I began to miss uh, home a little bit. So when I graduated from Georgetown, I came back to Wisconsin. I went to law school in Wisconsin, uh, continued to work for the Senator for a bit. And then um, after I graduated, I moved back to my hometown area um, and this brings us into the uh, running for office <laughs> uh, questions. Yeah. So, what made you decide, or what, what, where did you, when did you decide when that you were going to run for office? Like, where did, how did you kind of come to that conclusion that that was your next step? You know, I, I mean, so the first time I was ever involved in any politics really was was working with a senator. Um, I, growing up in a military family, my dad with having a uniform on generally stayed apolitical. I mean, we, there was, there's views, but generally just because of the nature of the military civil dynamic, he typically kept, um, I mean, our family certainly wasn't public about any political um, positions. Um, so for me, it wasn't something I ever planned on doing. Um, I remember, uh, so what happened in this particular circumstance is the uh, former congressman for the district, uh, Sean Duffy resigned. Um, uh, he had mentioned that his child who was being born uh, was going to have uh, heart complications and um, therefore wanted to be able to spend time with his family and when that occurred, um, it triggered a couple things in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin has different special election laws. Um, we have to have an election um, to fill the seat. It's not an appointment. Um, there can't be something done by the governor. Um, so when that happened, it triggered um, the mechanism to have an election set by late February. Uh, my phone was being, uh, well, my phone was quite frankly blown up by people asking me if this was something that I wanted to do. And uh, I'll be frank with you. Initially, I was hesitant. Um, my fiance and I were working through um, and still are working through the immigration process for her to come into the country. She's from Brazil. Um, and that takes a lot of time. There was also, um, just the rush of it. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is the special election, it was going to be a very quick turnaround. But, um, you know, I, I talked to a few people and, and, um, and they thought that it was something that I, I, 
I should pursue. And I felt that at that point in my life, I, I, even though I had lost my legs, I still wanted to serve our nation in some capacity and give back to a country that had given me so much. And I just felt that I had a platform at this point to do something like that. So I, I put my name in the hat for it. Now, how long did, how long was Sean Duffy's seat vacant? Cause I felt like it sat vacant for a decent amount of time. It did. So he officially, if I remember right, he officially resigned. It was either at the beginning or at the end of September. So he had announced that he was going to resign in August. And then he did a few weeks later. And that seat sat vacant until mid-May of next year. Okay. So, you know, you're, you're looking at about an eight-month vacancy, um, roughly, um, from the time he resigned to the time that uh, now Congressman Tiffany took the seat. So the... Um, it was a pretty lengthy uh, time. And it was also during the impeachment trial of the president as well. So there was a lot of things going on um, while the seat sat vacant. Okay, yeah, because you and I have talked about this before, but I was I ended up starting, I ended up initially watching your campaign because I was doing, um, I was being trained in some lobbying work and um, the clients of the person I was being trained under were, um, his clients were Red Cliff Band and they're obviously mm -hmm. in your district. So we were, we were watching the elections closely and then, any kind of issues that they would have, he would have to go elsewhere, like outside the district to find a congressman or woman to like work on the issue. So I know that seat definitely sat empty for a decent amount of time. Right. So, yeah, it, it was. Um, it was for, for a pretty good amount of time. So then did you, how was your, how was your relationship with Tom Tiffany when you ran with him? Were you guys like talking to each other? Were you guys close? Did you guys kind of um, go at it a little bit? Um, um, well, I, I'd known him. So, so Congressman Tiffany had been around uh, Wisconsin politics for a little while. He was the state Senator, um, up in Northern Wisconsin. And he, um, you know, had done a lot of, uh, work certainly with the, the walk administration and some of the hot button political issues of, of the state. And if you look at act 10, which is a very, very big thing in Wisconsin politics, it's the, um, it was a big thing that went on about almost 10 years ago now where um, they revised the way that collective bargaining occurred uh, with teachers unions um, in the state. And um, uh, Tiffany had, had certainly um, uh, worked hard with, with Walker and other Republicans to, to get that, that passed. And so he had um, some pretty decent name ID in the area and him and I had crossed paths in different, capacities before. It was always cordial. Um, and during the campaign itself, um, obviously we crossed paths quite a bit. Uh, you know, we were typically at the same locations for the same events and same things. It was always cordial. Um, I, I um, it, as opposed to other parts of the country, um, the, the nastiness, uh, the, the Mississippi mudsling, if you will, wasn't um, as prevalent between the two of us. Now, obviously, that there's other people in both camps that, that certainly um, had no problem throwing shots at each other. But uh, between the two of us, it's always been um, a respected and, uh, and uh, cordial relationship. Now I know during the campaign you talked a lot about uh, you talked a lot about the term limit issue that was that was a big issue for you. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your feelings on term term limits? Yeah, well, I think part of the problem exists right now with entrenchment. Uh, the The amount of time that we have people staying in Washington is, uh, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you've had people there that are sitting there for 
30, 40 plus years. And I just don't think that was ever the intention. Um, we've obviously put term limits on the president, uh, but Congress hasn't done it to itself. And I think that a lot of the, the problems that we see exist because there have been people who have been there for, in my opinion, far too long. And um, I, I think that it's something that needs to be imposed. And, and I don't know if Congress will do it to itself. So it may have to be a state um, issue through the constitution to bring a, to bring an amendment. But the, um, I think it's responsible for a lot of the, 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 the lingering problems we see. Um, I definitely did like your, I was at lace your, lace your boots up with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that. That was, you know, catchy. Well, I, you know, you, you try and use things that political campaigns are like any other thing that you're trying to advertise something. I mean, whether it's a person as a political candidate or a, or a, you know, the next greatest, you know, beer, you know, in Wisconsin, I mean, you're going to advertise it. Um, and you're going to want things that are relatable to, to who you are and what you believe in. And for me, it was about service again. Um, and I think just the play on what happened to my um, injury, you know, my legs, my injury, along with saying, Hey, look, I still lace my boots up and things like that made it, made it more uh, appealing. And um, I, um, you know, it was, it was, I think it was a, it was a, certainly brought you to know who I was as a candidate pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think you were pretty high biz. And then, you, you know, your campaigns and your commercials and things were, they were, they were done very well. So um, I was yeah. definitely rooting for you um, the whole time. <laughs> and actually, like, if you look at the numbers, I mean, you, you ran a really good campaign considering that you were running against someone that had quite a bit of experience. I mean, as well, far as the vote came down. Yeah, well, and this is what I would say to, you know, to veterans looking to run in the, in the future. And, and when I looked back on this race, um, you know, there's a few realities. You really have to be, you, you need to understand the risk and the, the real terrain that you're operating in. For me, um, there, there were a few things. One, the Congressman now, he had been in politics for a decade in the area. And so he had certainly known and, and to his credit, built up a strong um, relationship with a lot of um, Republican, uh, whether they're party leaders in counties or, or in the state, um, that he just known very well. And when I came into the race, you know, my name ID uh, amongst active political people in the area was still almost I mean, margins, very little. I mean, I remember the initial polling we did, well, I mean, I was single digits. And the thing is, um, you're, it, it's a hard thing to overcome in five months. I mean, you've got to raise the money and then you've got to be able to put an ad out. And the other big thing that that is tough um, is that this is not an urban district. I mean, the seventh congressional is it's very rural, large, and it's the largest in in, in Wisconsin by geography. Okay, it, it could take you eight hours to go from one end to the other, and the, 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 there's no metropolitan area that's larger than Wausau. And Wausau, you know, you're looking at the met, larger metropolitan area, you know, with everything going around, maybe 60,000, you know, with like the other um, communities that surround Wausau itself, and not all of them are even in the district. So the 
you're just not going to be able to knock enough doors. You know, you're not going to be able to go into enough places. You know, I can't hit a neighborhood up. Plus, this is also the middle of winter in Wisconsin. People just, there's not as many, there are some social events that are outside, but this isn't traditional campaign season in the, in the, the end of August, you know, when you've got a lot of fairs going on. You've got a lot of things that just naturally bring people together. Um, there just isn't that as many of those natural events that are occurring at the time. So all those are a disadvantage to me because I haven't built those relationships up over time. Um, and I think that um, uh, Congressman Tiffany certainly did. Um, and I think that um, in one of the um, things I look back on too, he uh, certainly knew um, some of the, the, what I think are the bigger issues of the district. Um, when it comes to issues like uh, the, the wolf issue, which I won't drag your listeners into here, but it's a very big issue. <laughs> it's a very big issue in Northern Wisconsin, um, at the great wolf. And then some other issues with mining and things like that, that he's taken a stand on. And he certainly was able to uh, speak um, credibly and with authority on both those issues that were very, very important to uh, voters in that area that he would take uh, votes in that area. And that was one of the attacks on me was that you don't know exactly what, you know, Jason may be saying X, but he doesn't have a record to say X. Um, that being said, uh, the message was still carrying some, um, and my ability to, to raise some funds was, was, was helpful in, in, in being able to put the message out. Um, but you, you got some, uh, you have a lot of endorsements from some people I mean, that I really like, like Dan Crenshaw, uh, you had Tom Cotton, Women for Trump, Ernst. I mean, you had some decent endorsements. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that that was, and and those were, I mean, it's great to have had their endorsements. I mean, from considering their records and what they do and, and what they've fought for and continue to fight for. Um, the, the issue here, though, I will say is that that did help me a lot nationally. It helped me get on... Um, you know, Fox News, it helped me raise you know, money and things like that. But when you look at um, what happened in, uh, in that race, um, they're great. I, I mean, I respect obviously Dan and, and Crenshaw and Tom Cotton and Joni Ernst a ton, um, but they're not as well known in Northern Wisconsin. Um, not as well known as say Scott Walker or Sean Duffy. So my opponent um, has their endorsement, um, that becomes a harder hill to climb. Yeah, because, I did see that. Yeah. Because when other, other Republicans in the area see that, they just, it, it, it's a trust factor. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I saw a lot too, when I was talking to people, um, who were fence setting, they would say, you know, I think you're a great candidate, but I've just known Tom a long time, which is a very common, which is a very common occurrence. And, and it's a credit to, to the Congressman and his ability to, to create those relationships over the years. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm sure he's actually a pretty decent congressman. I just wanted, I just think would have liked to have you in. But I mean, I, I mean, if you look at Tom Tiffany, if he was running by himself, you know, I, I think he's a pretty solid candidate overall. Well, and this is what I, you know, I would, as an AAR, I would say to anybody who's looking at running for office um, in a similar situation to to myself, um, you really need to know um, who's willing to throw their name in the hat from the political world and, and where you sit as a veteran. So most of us who serve, certainly if you're on active component too, your, your attachment to the area is going to be significantly less. Not because you don't, I mean, this is where I grew up, but that being said, I wasn't going to Lincoln day dinners for the past 10 years. 
I wasn't forging those relationships with people that had done those things. I mean, so you were busy, you, just to give yourself credit, you right, were busy right, right, those right, years, but you right. were centrally located in that district. Right. But what I'm saying is that that's, that is what the focus becomes, uh, certainly in a, in a, in a two-person primary. Um, when you have somebody who's laid the groundwork for those things for, for, a, for a long period of time, and even you come in with the best intentions, and let's say that you, 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 you know, you're not quote unquote carpet bagging, you're not doing all the things that typically associate a lot of negativity um, uh, with a candidate, you're still gonna have to climb over that hump. And in a two person race, it becomes far more difficult. If you look at other races where veterans have uh, won, certainly in a primary, a lot of it has actually been multi-candidate races. You have five or six candidates competing um, for that position. And what that does is it generally will split an establishment um, type candidates vote total um, because, you know, you're going to have a loyalty of the state senator from this area and people there and you have loyalty from another area of that congressional district's loyalty, you know, could be higher with this other particular candidate who is more closer to them. And then as a veteran, you come in and typically you know, if your message is good and you're, you're, you're talking about values that still speak to the electorate, you're going to get, in my opinion, um, other voters um, who like your personal characteristics of your personal story of who you are. And they begin to not necessarily look as much at, as long as you meet the same political credibility as your opponents, they begin to look at your character more. But because that vote wasn't spread out, um, the congressman was able to just be the only person who had held political prior office running against me then it makes that decision for people far more easier. And it can become a question of who do I know better? Um, and that's where um, Mr. Tiffany certainly takes um, more of the electorate. And like you said earlier too, you think this about like, because it was during a special election, maybe that also could have hindered. Well, it certainly doesn't help. Um, you're trying to create name ID when you're also looking at times of trying to raise money. And, you know, typically the way that cycles go is that you have a pretty decent period of time to be raising money and then just going door to door before you're trying to put out um, advertising. And we didn't have that luxury. Um, while roughly we raised the same amount of money, um, he had been able to utilize a network that had been around for a long time um, through some of the friends and, and allies he had had, um, through his time running in, in, in the state Senate. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a race against the, the clock that was not in my favor there. So looking back on your campaign, if you could go back and change anything, uh, what would be like the number one thing you would, you would change or that you would, you would look back at and maybe do a little differently? Well, I think there was a significant lean on my service and I don't think that that's a bad thing. But and, and part of it, too, is I'm trying to create a biography of, of who I am to the, to the voters. Um, but when you look at a Republican primary, you certainly have to be looking more at uh, the issues that really affect the electorate in that area. And that's where I say, again, I, I think that um, Mr. Tiffany did a far better job of being relatable in that regard and um, certainly knowing the electorate. So if I look back on it, I would have probably... Um, looked at more of um, less biography 
um, and probably more on the issues itself, because I thought that considering we were so close to each other on a lot of the issues and our positions that biography needed to be a distinguishing factor. But to be frank, I don't think that um, looking back on it, I would have done the same thing there. That's interesting. Yeah, because you guys did have pretty much the same stance on the major issues. So, right. Yeah, I could see where trying to just distinguish yourself by your biography would be would be um, smart. Um, do you plan to run again? Uh, not anytime soon. I, I'm, you know, there's a lot of things going on in my life right now that, uh, you know, are taking more focus than, than running for office. I, I think that there are a lot of great uh, Republican candidates in my own state of Wisconsin that need support and help. And I, and I think that um, for me personally, um, making sure that my ducks are in a row for my family is uh, priority number one right now. Yeah, definitely. Priorities change over time. But, they um, do. Yeah. Um, so it's, so to kind of wrap this up though a little bit, because originally, as we talked about, I wanted to do this podcast because I was personally disappointed um, that, as you know, there are less uh, veteran, there, there are less veterans now serving in Congress than there have been since World War II. But yet there was a lot of veterans that ran this time. So my interest was into talking to candidates who we ran to see exactly what their advice is for future candidates and how do we get more veterans into Congress. And you brought up a good point, too, when we talked about this. You said, well, you know, during World War II, more people were veterans. So obviously it would make sense that there would be more in Congress. But so what are some of your final thoughts um, and encouragements to veterans that want to run? And yeah, I would say first do do a little independent research yourself. And what I mean by that is I, I, I've, there are many people in the political world that I respect, um, that I've done a lot of great work with, um, that helped me a lot of my campaign. But I think that what you need to do is look at it yourself and say, okay, my goal here is to win an election. Um, am I going to be able to make this happen? And whether you're running for Congress or you're running for, um, your state assembly or Senate or, or, or whatever it is, you, you need to be honest in your assessment of looking at who the other stakeholders are, who are the people who are looking at running for this. And when you're identifying stakeholders, this isn't like just being like, okay, what's the Republican party of blah think you need to know who is consistently donated to campaigns in the area, who has been somebody who is, um, you know, it doesn't matter what office is being run for they're espousing their opinion in these areas. And you need to see what they feel about these issues because so much of the information that is passed, certainly in a primary or, a, or an early election is word of mouth stuff still. I and mean, you'll see things on social media, you'll see things, and I mean social media as, as a word of mouth as well, as a way of, as a way of proliferating um, uh, a message and see what they think about it. And then look at how many are involved. You know, I mean, is there like, is this an open seat that, you know, is a special election like mine where you have a short time frame to run? Or is this a normal cycle where you have time to plan out and you're like, okay, I have two years. I can spend a year doing X and then another year doing Y. But you have to be brutally honest with yourself um, and understand that just being a veteran is not going to um, be enough to win the electorate. Um, it's just not. Um, not that people don't genuinely mean thank you for your service. It just means that while they may be thanking you for your service, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be giving you their vote because inevitably it's not about who you are and what you've done for the country that matters. It's what are you going to do 
um, for me as a voter when you're in office um, and how those decisions and things that you do affect me. And um, it's not to discourage anyone from running, but I think what it does is it gives you a really honest perspective on what you're going to have to do and what your odds of success are. Okay, no, I think that's great advice because I do think sometimes people think because they're a veteran, it's a guaranteed end. And so I think yeah. that that's a very good perspective that you still have to do the work and you still have to do the homework and you still have to. And it's, it's I mean, it's not just the homework or doing this. I mean, you gotta be doing, I mean, and most, and I, I knew that too. I mean, it wasn't like that wasn't there, but, but there's, I think there's an over, there's an overconfidence mm-hmm. that sometimes exists that um, because we're willing to sacrifice everything for your country in uniform that that obviously that makes you you know a a more appealing person to serve um in a political capacity and to be frank with you um i think it has an effect on some of the electorate but it's not enough to win you an election okay interesting i think that yeah again i think that's great advice i do want to ask you one other question though um you do sure. like you do volunteer work for find it here sentinels of freedom yes can you tell us a little bit about that i, I thought that was just really cool um a foundation yeah so sentinels of freedom um was started by uh, mike conklin um a few years ago and the idea um was originally just to try and frankly get um, a young disabled veteran from their from their local community a van to be able to to move in um, and it grew from there. It grew into an organization that, um, in my opinion, was more about empowering veterans than simply just kind of um, appeasing veterans. And I'm not accusing any organization of just being appeasing of veterans, but I like the mission statement that Sentinels had, which was trying to get you back on a path um, of being uh, a fulfilling and contributing member to society again. And one of the things that Sentinels of Freedom really focuses on is education, um, certainly being able to uh, support veterans wherever they're at in life, whether it's they've got a family and three kids or they're like I was uh, single um, and connecting them with uh, members of the business community, members of the educational community and with a scholarship foundation that allows you to go to school um, and not have to worry about paying your rent. So the only thing that you need to focus on is, you know, your educational goal and for me, it was helpful because I used it when I was getting a master's in Washington and, and my law degree in, at, uh, at Madison. And um, there's others that, you know, they're, they're getting their, their, their bachelor's degree and they've got three kids and they certainly can't be, you know, taking, you know, a lot of time off if they're paying a mortgage. And this foundation allows them to do that. Um, it gives you the connections down the road for success. There's a lot of people who sit and are affiliated with the organization that do phenomenal things. Um, in the private world that then give a connection to the veteran when they graduate from college and they either need an internship or a job, whatever. Um, and it's been an honor to work uh, with them for a long time as a graduate and now sitting on the board myself. That was very cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that foundation. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a time to give the plug, Lindsay. Yeah, no, definitely. I, mean, I want to thank you so much for your time and for telling us your story because it, you know, very interesting story and thank you for being able to, to come on the podcast and talk about it so i want to want to thank you well thank you again Lindsay. really appreciate it